Today, during our time in God's Word, we're going to be talking about something that is often overlooked, sometimes misunderstood, and yet vital for our Christian walk. And that something would be spiritual self-discipline. Today, we're going to be talking about spiritual self-discipline, and we're going to be looking at a particular passage of Scripture, and that passage would be 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 11 The Apostle Paul talks about spiritual discipline, spiritual self-discipline. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. It's been on my mind lately for various reasons. And again, it's something we don't often talk about. It's something we sometimes misunderstand or oftentimes other people misunderstand it. Surely you don't, um, but it can be misunderstood. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I have a top 10 list uh, today. I don't think the Apostle Paul had a top 10 list for this. Um, But to help my thinking and to have an outline to follow, we will look at 10 motivating truths about spiritual self-discipline. But I promise you they will come from the text. If you're wondering why aren't we back in Matthew... Well, we've been studying the gospel according to Matthew for some time now as a church. And last Sunday we had a special occasion. And I just not ready yet. So there's the honest answer. Um, And this has been on my mind. So we will be back in Matthew 24 here shortly once I'm ready. So how about that for honest? I didn't blame the Holy Spirit. Uh, I didn't blame something else. I just said I'm not ready yet. So that's kind of how that goes. The last time I preached through Matthew 24 and 25, um, uh, a gentleman said to me afterward, he said, so I'm really looking forward to next week because I have a lot of questions. And I said, well, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, and I still have a lot of questions. So um, when we're talking about the end of the world and things like that, there are going to be lots of questions based upon even what Jesus himself says. Well, we should pray one more time to sanctify our time yet again. Father, thank you for this morning. Encourage these men and women who are here, including myself, to be able to think clearly, biblically, in a way that honors Christ about an important matter that would have to do with our spiritually being disciplined ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, first motivating truth about spiritual self-discipline. Number one, it is a biblical mandate. It is a biblical mandate. I know we're looking at chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, but the main command, as far as I see it, is nestled in the middle. And so let's identify the main command first, and it's found at the end of verse 7. At the end of verse 7, it says there's a four-word command, and the four-word command is train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. It is an imperative. It is a command. It's not optional. It comes to us through the Apostle Paul, but he's the Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, it comes from Christ. It is a Christian duty. It is a Christian calling. It is a Christian obligation. It's to be a Christian delight. However you'd like to say it, it is a mandate. Now, I originally learned it and memorized it in a different translation, and so I may slip into that one. It says, discipline yourself, not train. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. But the idea is the same. King James says, exercise. uh, Or as our translation says, training or discipline. All are fitting and appropriate because he's using an athletic metaphor. So if you have that sense of athletic training or disciplining as an athlete would, you get the right sense. So please notice this is something we're called to do. We're mandated to do. 
Now, please notice what it's not implying by that. This is not salvation through self-discipline. Okay, so if you're just tuning in, you're just joining us, we're not saying the way to be right with God. It's not justification through self-discipline. No, we trust in Christ and his finished work. But once we're trusting in Christ and we have been saved, we have been justified, we're made right with God, we've been reconciled to God, all of these different ways of saying the same thing. We're not called to be passive in our Christian life. We're called to do things. We're called to act a certain way as Christians. And here the command is, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Anything but passive. And if you're saying, well, why? You're ready for number two. Why would we want to have this command? Question, or, or truth number two about spiritual self-discipline. Number two, in one, if you just want to use one word, just use the word apostasy. Apostasy. If you want to use two, three words, because of apostasy. If you want what I have, it is especially important given the apostasy of our day. Just trying to reach everybody. <laughs> trying to be friendly. Now, now let's go to the beginning. So we looked at that main command in the middle, and everything is related to it organically and complements it. But now let's go back to verse 1, and we'll start working our way through it chronologically. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, now the Spirit expressly says. So this is clear. This isn't a feeling. This isn't a, a, a guess. This is explicit from God. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times. And when are latter times? Well, they're before the former times. No, they're after the former times. Latter times in the Bible in the New Testament, based on Hebrews chapter 1, also in First John, the latter times are these times. We've been living in the latter times. We've been living in the last times since when? In light of Hebrews chapter 1, we've been living in the last times since Jesus was here, resurrected and ascended. And so sometimes people say, I wonder if we're living in the last times. Do you think? Um, and, and I'll give you some grace if you haven't read the Bible. But if you've read the Bible, you say, we're living in the last times. Okay, In these last times, the times between Christ's ascension and His return, these are the last times. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. Depart is the idea of apostasy. These would be men and women and boys and girls who once professed faith in Christ. And now they no longer profess faith in Christ. Or, since it's the faith, which is a technical designation in the New Testament used pretty frequently, the faith, the objective, settled body of truth regarding Jesus Christ and His work would be a good summary of the faith, the settled truth about Jesus and what he's accomplished and how salvation works in and through him. We could, we could add to it and fill it out, but the faith, the Christian truth, okay? In the last times, some will, it says, depart, walk away from the faith. So it doesn't mean they become atheists, although that would be a kind of apostasy. They've moved away from the faith. Maybe that now they believe in a different Jesus, a different version of Jesus, a lesser one or something like that that doesn't match the faith Jesus. It's a different one, okay? But here's the warning. This is going to happen. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, 
through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Talk about name-calling. Talk about warning. In our greater context, be serious, sober-minded about spiritually being self-disciplined because you know apostasy is real. There are people who once were professing like you and now no longer are. And you think, that's terrible, that's awful. That's right, it's terrible and it's awful. Fascinatingly enough, in our passage, the Apostle Paul tells us uh, what's, what's behind the scenes working, the ultimate driver behind denial, denials of the faith, and then he talks about the, the mediating means, if you will, which is fascinating to me. If you want to go ahead and go, go, go and look again at our verse, verse 1, deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Ultimately, the driving force would be the father of lies and his minions and demons. Anything moving from the faith would be demonic. Pretty hardcore, calling them out. And yet, who is going to ever hear someone say, Hi, I'm a demon. Would you like to believe what I believe? Hi, I'm the devil. Would you like to sign up? Professing Christian? Seems kind of dumb. Not very likely. And yet they use individuals, according to our passage, to promote demonic doctrine. It is demonic, but they use individuals to establish or accomplish their purposes. And so it says, verse 2, through. It's demonic doctrine. It's deceitful, but it's through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So God, excuse me, Satan uses these individuals who are insincere to promote something as the faith that's not the faith or just as an outright denial of the faith, they're not sincere. What they're promoting isn't sincere. In fact, he uses this graphic designation to help us understand because we might say, how could anybody do that? How could anyone with a conscience tell people lies and label them the truth? Well, that's a good question. And he uses this image of a branding iron searing their conscience so that they lack feelings. They're numb to it. If something's cauterized, it creates, uh, it removes sensitivity, feeling, or at least the same kinds of feelings. And he says, you know what, they're like that. You wonder how these people can do this and peddle this stuff that leads people to move away from the faith, to depart from the faith. How awful. Maybe they felt it originally. They don't feel it anymore. The Apostle Paul's calling them out. He's not trying to win friends and influence people here. He's saying apostasy is a real thing in the last days. Not just me, but the Spirit explicitly says that this is true. And I think we should know this. We we shouldn't be gullible, silly-minded, undiscerning Christians. Apostasy is real. If it's a denial of the faith, it's demonic. They might have a smile. They might seem sincere. They're not sincere. But it's bad. It's bad. So you say, well, 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 that, that should motivate me to not be a casualty. That should motivate me to be well-grounded, to know the faith, the truth. And we're going to get there. 
But all of this is about discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. I want to be strong spiritually. I want to be well-disciplined spiritually so I'm not gullible, so I'm not easily misled by those who would promote demonic doctrine. I want to be clear-headed. We're fooling ourselves if we think everyone who names the name of Christ is sincere. We're fooling ourselves if we think in those kinds of terms. It's a real warning. A good compliment would be the book of Jude, but we won't go there. Now, let's move on to a third. We're doing ten of these. Uh, A truth about spiritual discipline. Number three, spiritually, being spiritually self-disciplined has absolutely nothing to do with extra-biblical standards. It has absolutely nothing to do with keeping extra-biblical standards. And that's a mouthful, I know, but here's why this is important. And, and if I could, I would stand on my head if I thought it would get your attention better. I know it wouldn't. You just think, how ridiculous, why is he doing that? What a crazy person. So I won't. Plus, all the blood would rush to my head, and I couldn't think straight and couldn't preach. But anyway, my point is... I. This is, this is a critical matter because what we're seeing here is not, oh, to be spiritually disciplined means you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to do this and you have to do that and you know you have to do what the celebrity pastor says. It's not in the Bible, but they've given us a list so we have to do this if we're going to be disciplined. And oftentimes, our passage is quoted even out of context, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, then we ignore the context and now all of a sudden, Discipline number one. That's not in the Bible, but it's one I'm giving you. Because it is a command to be spiritually disciplined. And then number two, well, you didn't find that in the Bible either. And then I'll sneak a Bible one in. And then there's another Bible one because I'm trying to deceive you or I'm self-deceived. And then another one that's not in the Bible because you know what? Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness is a command. You see? That's not how we do it. Clearly here, he doesn't mean extra biblical stuff. Because when we read verse 1, the demonic stuff, the seared conscience stuff, please don't miss this, then he gives a couple examples of what he's not talking about. These, this is not how you discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. How about verse 3? Who forbid marriage. There's an example. See, In the history of Christianity, some people say, if you want to be spiritually disciplined, and you know it is an imperative, and if you really want to be godly, then you should be celibate. And it's a command from God, if you really want to be godly. Whatever the list of spiritual disciplines includes, it's not extra-biblical stuff. Okay? It's so weird to me that when I buy a book from our bookstore, oh no, we took them out of our bookstore, on the spiritual disciplines that there are things on the mandated list that aren't things that are in the New Testament. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. There's another example. That God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy... By the word of God and prayer. See, if we, if the Bible designates it as good, in other words, to use his word, holy, then for us to tell people they have to go without these things if they want to truly be extra godly and to be disciplined for godliness, 
It's bonkers. It's crazy. But this is a whole industry within Christianity to get people to do certain things that the Bible doesn't say you have to do or you have to avoid. And then you're godly. I don't know why it's our knee-jerk reaction or something. What God says is good, we say is, eh, I don't know. Well, that's just for ordinary Christians. If you want to be extraordinary Christians, see, it's a Gnostic kind of thing. And Gnosticism sells super special knowledge that's not in the Bible knowledge, but I've got it. Whatever these spiritual disciplines are, and you're thinking, so then what are they? Well, I'm glad you're thinking that. But they're not adding extra stuff like the false teachers do. Clearly, they're not adding the extra stuff. Those are holy things. The Word of God tells us they're good. They're made holy. And if you stop and think about it, when you forbid these things, how's that been working out for those who forbid these things? I don't even want to quote gross statistics for you. They don't restrain the flesh. It doesn't work. And not only that, it's a bad look because it doesn't work. It's a bad look because it's bad to say God requires something that God doesn't say He requires. It's a really bad look. That's the kind of stuff Satan does. So now let's move on. Number four, we're doing ten of these. uh, Truths about spiritually being disciplined, self-discipline. Number four. It is done... through devotion to the faith and sound doctrine. It is done, not by extra biblical stuff, but through devotion to the faith and sound doctrine. Okay, let's see it in the text. I like this because now we're not getting the negative, we're getting the positive. How about verse 6 with me? Verse 6 says, If you put these things before the brothers, which is what Timothy's supposed to do as a pastor, telling them about these things, warning them about these things and how this stuff works, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, which is obviously what he wants to be. And then here's how, here's how, what this looks like in his life. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Notice it's, it's the training word. It's the discipline word. So, so Timothy, how, how do you succeed? How are you successful in the eyes of God? And it's legitimate where you're not being trained in forbidding uh, keeping from marriage or forbidding certain foods. That's not the training regimen. It doesn't work. It's not biblical. But the training regimen is, number one, Words of the faith and good doctrine or sound doctrine. The grammar is repetition, being trained. So you're being trained on the words of the faith. At least two Greek grammar experts say equal sign, the words of the faith, the words of the Christian faith, the words of the gospel the words that relate to Jesus Christ, His person and His work, and how salvation works. Constantly nourished. How can I be spiritually disciplined? I'm prone to listen to people who have secrets. 
But explicitly, Timothy, you want to be trained? Constantly be nourished on the words, revelation, objective revelation of the faith, the Christian faith. I love it. I love the imagery even, constantly nourished. Um, I think about a cow and the cow, I'm told, chews its cud to get all the nutrients out. I don't know how it all works. I, I, I'm not a bovine expert. I don't play one on TV, but I'm told. I've learned to say things like this because then I get corrected afterward from someone who is an expert. But you get the idea. <laughs> well, I'm not smart, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> Constantly nourished. This, this, Timothy, is your well-worn path, to use a different image. And you just stay in this well-worn path. It might not be a fad, but if you want to actually be successful in your training, constantly nourished on the words of the faith, and then almost just like it, hand in hand, hand in glove, that which would complement it, and of the good doctrine, the good teaching, the complementary teaching, the teaching that would be developing the implications, teasing out the implications. Uh, the arguments that would be supporting or contradicting. It's the theology of it, the doctrine of it, of the faith. So, in one sense, it doesn't look very shiny. It doesn't look very fatty. But I like to say, I, I think fattyanity sounds terrible. And it should sound terrible. It's demonic. It's not Jesus plus, it's not Jesus minus, it's not a different Jesus, it's not a God told me, it's the faith, it's the settled apostolic doctrine, Jude, once and for all, delivered to the saints' faith about the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is and what He's done, and the doctrine that would be legitimately developed that surrounds that great reality, well-worn path, that's where I am, that's where I stay. Central focus. And when someone says, surely there's something more to it than that. I want to say, surely you don't get it. And I don't think he has in mind surface level. We're just repeating the same exact thing all of the time in one simple sentence. You know, I love what Romans chapter 11 says about these kinds of things. Romans eleven thirty three, the apostle Paul, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And he's clearly talking about salvation in that flow of context and talking about Christ, who he is and what he's done. What do we want to do? I want to fathom. I want to keep working on fathoming the unfathomable. Try to say that a bunch of times. Searching the depths. Oh, the infinite wisdom, the glory, the greatness of Christ and what he's done, who he is. And if that gets old, I think you're buying into demonic doctrine. I say this a lot, a lot, a lot. Sorry, not sorry. 
But I think it's for good reason that Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, didn't say, do this in remembrance of me, do this in remembrance of me, and then forget about it for thousands of years until I return and we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think the problem is about the time I touched the doors out there, I've forgotten the whole thing and I'm already into something else. Even in the name of Christian living. But actually, Jesus says through his apostles, this is going to be instituted till I return. The song hadn't been written yet, but prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it is a reality. How? What's the key spiritual discipline here? Constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of good doctrine, healthy doctrine, healthy teaching. That's the positive side of things. And you can, you can encourage me by demanding this of me. Pastor, during this hour that we have, would you please be constantly helping us, giving us the words of the faith, not something else, and of healthy, sound doctrine, not something else, because that's actually what we need. Now, we need it beyond the here and now in the here and now. We need it when we leave too. Spiritually, being spiritually disciplined is not saying, I've got Jesus and now I've got to move on to bigger and better things. I know you wouldn't say that. But I'm afraid it's a whole industry. Not that there aren't other important things in life. But he's talking about spiritually being self-disciplined. Really important stuff for us. Verse, or not verse 5, number 5. The next fact, the next key truth, if you will, about spiritually being self-disciplined. It's in contrast to speculation. It's in contrast to speculation. Now I want to go to the beginning of verse 7. We already looked at the end of verse 7, but it's, it's, a, it's a huge contrast. Look at the beginning of verse 7. Have nothing to do with, also present imperative, keep and always have having nothing to do with. Okay? Avoid, keep avoiding, stay away, flee from, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Think about how insulting, because he's no doubt warning against real problems. So I want you to be committed to the basics about Christ. And therefore, I want you to have nothing to do with that other stuff that's being promoted and peddled by fattyanity. Gross. And you know what? The Apostle Paul says it's silly. He's talking down. That, that, that's ridiculous. That's silly. That's dumb. That's mythological. That's like made up stuff. And I'm guessing, I think a pretty good sanctified guess would be, he says irreverent because in and of itself, people are thinking it sounds reverent. We have certain theories about spirituality. Um, and people look and go, oh, that person is so godly. That they, they, they are, that's, that's deserving of some reverence. And the Apostle Paul is counting, calling out and saying, that is about as stupid as could possibly be silly, mythological, irreverent. You're confused. 
Don't call it reverent. I think he's doing that for sure. Maybe not for sure, but I think he's doing that. Other translations, the ESV says um, irreverent, silly myths. Um, Other translations say worldly fables fit only for old women. I wouldn't ever quote that to you in the 21st century. (laughs) There were some wise people on the ESV translating committee. (laughs) I actually think they were wise because it doesn't carry over into the 21st century. I'm going to argue out of both sides of my mouth here for a second. But you see, it's hard to do translation because we don't talk that way. And so if you put it that way, people go, what in the world are they talking about? But literally, it does have to do with old women. So if we want a literal translation, it's not just silly myths that are irreverent. It's actually worldly fables fit only for old women. So email. Email Pastor Mike Holloway with your complaints. (laughs) But the idea is, the idea is like old wives' tales. These are the... That stuff that's being promoted to help your spirituality, that stuff is like the kind of story that a grandmother would tell a grandchild when she's just doing fantasy story time. There's nothing wrong with it, but to say put your eternal destiny in the hands of it is absolutely stupid. That's the idea. He's not being sexist. He's making fun of false teachers. So he would go, yeah, That's stupid. Why would we put our confidence in that? That's make-believe. That's crazy. We should be so caught up with the glories of Calvary and understanding the implications of what it means for us and the significance of it that when we hear someone else promoting something else, we go, that's just silly talk. Now, we're all at different places, and so I don't want to do that to you if you say, Pastor, have you heard about this? I want to take you seriously because I want to help you. But the more we grow spiritually, the more I hope, at least internally, when we hear of such things that deny the faith, we go, that's just stupid. But we're going to show patience and kindness with people who aren't false teachers, who just want to know, who just want to know. But the more well-worn that path is, I would submit to you, you'll be able to be discerning and say, that's just crazy talk. Okay. Now, let's move on. Are we on number six? I hope we are. Let's go to number six. Another truth about spiritual self-discipline. It's like physical discipline. We'll do this one super quickly. It's like physical discipline. Now, Even if you don't like exercise, I won't want to ask for a show of hands, but some of you like exercise, some of you don't like exercise, everybody can understand what he's getting at, okay? For while bodily training or discipline is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Pretty straightforward. Let's just use the bodily discipline image. He might be bringing it up because some of the false teachers are making that a spiritual virtue. virtue. I don't know. I'm not going to go there. But the idea, generally speaking, or overall is, 
there's benefit if you exercise, you feel better, you might live longer, all of these other kinds of things. You might have to be on less meds or whatever it is. But you know what? What really matters is spiritual discipline, constantly nourished, focusing on nourishing yourself on the faith, sound doctrine, that's going to help you live now, be discerning, think clearly, live for the glory of Christ now, and that actually matters absolutely forever, is the idea. It's a great analogy. Think about athletes who are world-class, successful athletes. So many times what they do isn't that complicated. They're just committed. A lot of times they do very similar things most days. They're just more committed to doing the things most days and the rest of us aren't. And oftentimes these athletes, we can say if we're really going to summarize, they're good at saying no. Remarkably good at saying no to certain things. It's a good illustration. We're going to do the basics and we're going to do the basics constantly nourished. And part of it's going to, we're going to turn a deaf ear to the silliness. And we're, we're going to succeed like athletes do. Even if it's hard, they see the prize and it's worth it. Okay, let's move on to number seven. Another truth about self-discipline, self-spiritual discipline, and that is it's the best choice. It's the best choice. It's the proven best choice. And if it's the best choice, it deserves our full acceptance. Verse nine says, the saying, the saying that he's just referenced, some take this verse 9 to go with verse 10. I'm going to take it with verses 8 and above. Both would work, but I'm going to take it as a flowing statement, complementing what we've just heard. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's tried, it's tested, it's settled that this is how it is. And if it's trustworthy, I'm all in. If it's not trustworthy then maybe I'm part way in. But if it's trustworthy, I'm, I'm all in. I'm committed. Which has to do, and we'll get to this, it has to do with God and His revelation and His Son and eternal life that's found in Him and how things actually are to work and not work. It's trustworthy. And if it's trustworthy, it deserves our full acceptance. A wise investor is going to say, well, what's, what's, tr- what's a trustworthy thing to invest in? Well, here he's really making the case that it's not just, well, you want to diversify. <laughs> he's saying, this is the trustworthy investment, so be all in. There aren't very many areas of life where we do that. If we're talking about God and His promises here, we're all in. I don't have to say, well, I'm partially in, but I kind of want to see if this fad is going to turn out. Because I know a lot of other people who are into it, and you should see the names that endorse it. This is what's trustworthy. I'm all in. I'm all in. I forgot to mention this earlier, but some time ago I, I read a book by a... I think well-meaning, well-known evangelical preacher on a particular spiritual discipline. The whole book was about one spiritual discipline, so-called. And I thought, oh, I I should read this book because it's not something I'm doing. 
It's not a regular spiritual discipline in my life, so I should read the book. Only to read the whole book and never hear any proof whatsoever that it's a new covenant mandate for me as a Christian. So why am I going to do it? Why would I consider that a Christian spiritual discipline when it's a spiritual discipline never intended for Christians? Because it works for them? Why would I want to be under that yoke? It seemed crazy to me. The wise investment is constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the complementary sound doctrine. And as I'm nourished on the words of the faith, I'm going to find out other things I'm supposed to do as a Christian. But if they're not in the words of the faith, it might be what somebody else enjoyed doing or not. But why would I think somehow it's virtuous in my Christian life and honors Christ when it's not made holy by the word of God in prayer. We've got to think. And we have to remember that you could hear someone's argument, you know what would be good for you to go without this food? And it would be good for you if you didn't get married. I hate to use the slippery slope argument. Maybe not, it's not the slippery slope argument, but you go, you know what? doesn't pass, pass my First Timothy 4 discernment test. Okay, let's move on. Number eight. The next truth about spiritual self-discipline, per, it's to be pursued zealously. It's to be pursued zealously. So we're all in. This complements that. Pursue it zealously. And if that's a word that has negative connotations, passionately. Verse 10, for to this end, Paul says, we toil and strive. More athletic imagery. If we're all in, we're all in to the point of it's like a sport. We're seriously all in. And I love it that Christianity is a unique religion from every other religion ever. We toil and we strive from a position of what? Of resting. (laughs) We're resting in Christ. Come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. And now we have a burden that's light because it's not a burden for our justification. It's not a burden for our reconciliation or salvation. And yet we're called to action. And so we're all in to the point of I'm going to be constantly nourished on the words of the faith. And I'm going to do so. I'm going to pursue it with passion, toil, and striving. Yes, we could go to other texts that say it's the Lord that empowers. First, or Philippians chapter 2. It's true. It is the Lord who is at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure, but He doesn't do it for us. Even if I can make the distinction, He does it in us. Theology is about fine lines sometimes, so I do this. (laughs) But we're called to action, and we act. And we give God glory because it actually is Him working in and through us. Number nine and then ten. I promise I'll go quickly. Number nine. We pursue it zealously because of who God is. 
We pursue it zealously because of who God is. And if I can add to that what he promises, this might be the best part. So if you thought the best part was over and you're dreaming of the Chick-fil-A sandwich, you're not going to have after church today. This is maybe the best part. We're gonna, we're, we're all in. We're pursuing with passion and zeal and commitment. How about verse 10 where it goes on to say, but we have our hope. Unbelievers think of hope as hope and hope, hope in, uh, maybe it'll turn out this way. Christians have hope because of something that is sure because of the resurrection. So it's actually a confidence because we have our hope, our confidence in the future. Notice this set on the living God. The living God. It's meant to be exceptional and extraordinary because if there's only one God, there's only one, the living God. In contrast to all of the idols of the pagans. All of the idols that they, they chop down the tree and then they whittle it out with their hands or stone it might be or metal, but let's use the tree. They chop the tree down and they make an idol and then they worship the idol. Until they're cold, and then they burn the idol. How dumb is that? That's silly, mythological goofiness. The living God, the one and only God. If there's only one God, I'm all in. I'm all in. Why would I pursue this reality with all of my being? Because there's only one living God. And you might be saying, how do we know that he's living? Because he raised his son from the dead is the ultimate way that we know. There are other ways, but that's the ultimate way that we know. The living God. People say, you know, you're, you're, you, you pursue this, you know, like it's a religion. Do you think? Right? And every other religion is aping this one. There's at least a kernel of truth in every other religion because there's passion and there's devotion and there's commitment and all of those have a have a, a reflection of truth. But if there is the living God, then all of those affections and passions and commitments are misplaced. Our confidence, our hope is in the living God who raises the dead, the God of the living, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who wasn't their God. He is their God. The Bible uses it that way, according to Jesus. It's extraordinary. And he's given us his son. He said, listen to my son. The faith. The sound doctrine. I'm all about it. And it I don't want to say it gets better, but if we only have a living God and we're sons and daughters of Adam, worthy of condemnation, it's not good news. But he goes on to say, who is the Savior? Oh, this is great. There's salvation, which would otherwise be an impossibility if it weren't for a substitute, if it weren't for the resurrected Son who is the Savior. And He's the Savior of all people. He's the one and only Savior. The living God. Savior. One and only Savior. That makes sense. The living God. I would make a connection between the and all. The living God. Savior of. Savior of all people. Especially after the comma of those who believe. At least two Greek scholars essentially say, especially, 
basically is an equal son. He's the savior of all. That is to say, those who believe. I think they're right. He's the savior of those who believe. The one and only savior, the savior of those who believe. Okay, number 10, finally. It is not just for pastors. It is not just for pastors. Verse 11, command and teach these things. So far, he's been addressing Timothy. You could say, well, that's all fine and good for you. You're a pastor. Now, the pastor who's told these things is to command and teach these things to the congregation. These are things for everybody. It's just meant to start with him so he can teach other people to be these kinds of people. I do like the emphasis, though. Command! So, yes, as a fellow sheep shepherd, but the demeanor is not, you know, this worked out for me. And if you're into the other stuff and the countless other spiritual disciplines, and you know, if it works for you, I'm glad you have your truth. It's not the idea. Command and teach these things. This is, this is how it works. This is how Christianity works. Let's not ever conclude, well, it's fine to have Jesus, but now what? It's not how it works. Final question and then we'll be done. What if this doesn't work? something to think about. What if this doesn't work? First of all, I would respond and say, we could have a long conversation about this, but I'll respond and say, it does work. It does work. For those who it's going to work for, it works. I'm reminded, I haven't quoted him for a long time, I'm reminded of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher of about 100 years ago in London, who wrote a very provocative article called something like this, Feeding the Sheep or Amusing the Goats? Pretty provocative. It works. Might not work for everybody, but it works. One more nuanced comment about that. But you might be saying to yourself, I've tried that, but I need something more. And seriously, I I would plead with you that something more is not going to satisfy you. Church history is filled with the something mores. Doesn't end well. We have to work at this. We've got a lot of perspiration in the passage. But to find Christ as the one in whom we find satisfaction. And if we don't find satisfaction in Christ, it's not because there's a better way. We might need some help, but it's not because there's a better way. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church and all churches around the world that are seeking to point people toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for being a God who forgives. Thank you for granting us wisdom and maturity. We long for the day when we see Christ and are made like him, when we no longer struggle, that we then see, indeed, he is the one where we find our greatest satisfaction. In the meantime, help us. Help us to mature and to grow and also help us to point other people toward where they can find 
ultimate rest and ultimate satisfaction and ultimate motivation for godly living in the here and now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a great day.